Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the May 2023, Volume 119, Issue Number 5 episode of the Fertility and Sterility on Air podcast. I'm Pietro Bordaletto, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. E. Feinberg, Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Kurt and Eve. How are you two? Nice to hear from you, Pietro. I'm doing very well. Thanks. Great to be back. I'm missing Micah, but I'm glad that he's on the road to recovery and excited for another awesome episode. Here, here. Well, this month has a great views and reviews section that I want to point out to folks since we don't typically highlight the views and reviews on the podcast. It's a deep dive into endometriosis and adenomyosis. Lots of questions being asked and answered, like are they the same disorder but just on the different ends of the spectrum? What's the best way to treat them? How do they impact fertility and endometrial receptivity? And are there negative impacts in pregnancy? It's a really great group of authors, Dr. Sarah Bulin, Paul Pertea, Paula Virtualini, and Dom DeZiegler. So I urge everyone to go check it out if you want to learn what the state of the art is and how we think about endo and adno. We're going to start off with the seminal contribution this month. Kurt, you're going to tell us a little bit more about very long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. And I think start off by explaining what that is to us and how it impacts sperm. Be happy to. So the seminal article was, again, as you alluded to, entitled Sperm Very Long-Chain Polyunsaturated Fatty Acids, Relation to Semen Parameters and Live Births in a Multicenter Trial. Let me give you the specifics first, and then we can dive into it. It's by a great group of authors. Sarah Gavrinzi is the first author, and Carl Hansen is the senior author out of University of Oklahoma, uh, with a lot of collaborators, including Mike Diamond and others. So the goal of this trial was relatively straightforward. The goal was to determine if levels of uh, sperm, very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids are correlated with sperm parameters and then also with the outcome of live birth following conventional therapy for unexplained infertility. It's a novel hypothesis, and I'll get into that in a second, but it's also, um, I think, very intriguing because they used some very good data. They basically used the Amigos trial. You remember that trial? That helped us shape how we treat women with unexplained infertility uh, and had a lot of banked specimens. And they were able to take this trial and find 185 couples with unexplained infertility with baseline semen parameters uh, and conduct this uh, very specific analysis. So they determined VLC with mass spectroscopy with very specific laboratory techniques identifying these specific structures. And the findings were that they found that the levels of um, the acronym they used, VLC-PUFA, the percentage of these very long chain fatty acids was positively correlated with sperm concentrations, both with uh, total count and morphology, even after you adjusted for things like BMI, age, and race. And they went one step farther. It wasn't just were these fatty acids associated with spin parameters. They actually looked to see if it was associated with live birth rate, um, and actually it was. They found following adjustment for female age and treatment group, the probability of live birth was 72% more likely among those in the third tercile as opposed to the first tercile. So the bottom line for this paper, even though I haven't described what we're looking for yet, is that these long-chain fatty acids are associated with both semen parameters and then, again, going one step farther, associated with pregnancy rates. So why the heck am I even talking about this? Um, the main answer is that basically they're admitting that semen analysis isn't our best predictors. We've had lots of talks on this podcast about the predictive ability of parameters of semen analysis. Do they change by geography? Do they change by exposures? Um, but we all agree that semen analysis, in essence, is a relatively crude form of assessing male infertility. And this hypothesis is basically saying maybe there's something more specific that we can look at. And very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids are a unique fatty acid found uh, in only a couple of tissues. They're found in the brain, they're found in the retina, and they're found in the testis. 
And this is thought to be one of the building blocks of the lipid components of sphingomyelin and cremates in the sperm plasma membrane. So it really is basically saying, can we look at a specific structure of the sperm, particularly the sperm membrane, and see if that's a better predictor of fertility than the outcome of the spermiogenesis, meaning you know just the shape of the sperm or counting the sperm. There's some good and bad preliminary evidence to suggest this is true. There's some animal evidence that you can get down to the biology of how these very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids are actually incorporated in the sperm membrane and how it might affect permeability and how it might affect fertilization. But the um, evidence in, in people is actually kind of sparse. There have been a couple trials that have tried to look at, again, exposures to this these long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. And is it associated with DHA? Um, and those have been mixed. So it's preliminary in couples, but there's a reasonably good aspect in mice. So what did I just say? Basically, I said that there's a new possibility that we could have better markers of male fertility or better markers of sperm that might be more specific to things like plasma membranes and fertilization rather than the crude method of just counting them. What would be the evidence of such a thing? Well, the first evidence would be, can I measure it? And they have some very elaborate methods with mass spectroscopy and identifying the, the, the ones of interest. It's a relatively tissue-specific fatty acid, so that makes sense to me. The next sentence would be, can I get a really good cohort and say, are these measurements associated with a very good correlative semen analysis? And they did. They got the Amigos trial, baseline semen analysis, and said, look, we can we can differentiate whether the sperm is good or bad based on this method. And finally, to my surprise, they went one step farther and they said, not only that, we can take this relatively small number of men and say, look, the fertility is actually different if they have better levels. So while no one's suggesting we go out and buy a mass spectroscopy machine and put it in your office and do this instead of semen analysis, the reason this is a seminal contribution is this is a, you know the first step in saying we can get much better. We can get to a molecular approach for a semen analysis rather than just counting and arguing whether a computer is better at counting or a person is better at counting or the morphology screen is better. We can actually get more molecular. So that's why I chose this as a seminal contribution. And I hope the science didn't overwhelm you or make you crash your car, um, but it's worth understanding. Yeah, I, I really liked it. And I thought the clinical application, if I were to take it one step further and say, how can I think about this clinically? I think with those patients, if you had some sort of a predictor of who might fail IUI, because if this very long chain fatty acid is responsible for binding of the sperm to the zona pellucida and entering into the cell, you may have a better predictor of not only who's going to fail IUI, but who may fail if you progress to IVF, who may fail conventional insemination, and who may actually need to have ICSI to allow that sperm into the zona. And so I thought it was really compelling. And I, I have had a few patients who have, quote, unexplained infertility. And we, I think, have a tendency to say, oh, no, no, it's not male factor. The numbers look really good. And then those couples get to IVF and have complete failed fertilization when done with ICSI. We often will do ICSI split for those patients. And I'm often curious to see whether or not we see a difference between binding in vivo and fertilization rates between the conventional and the ICSI arms. So I think that the while this paper didn't go there, I think that the clinical application as a predictor and possibly even as something that could be modified, perhaps by diet, supplementation, other things, I thought it showed a lot of promise. It's interesting, Eve, that the only thing that the very long-chain fatty acid was correlated with was actually sperm morphology, not associated with sperm motility. And to me, I think of morphology as being kind of that most, the least predictive of our semen parameters and the one that is most variable from month to month and, and uh, andrologist to andrologist. So it's interesting that morphology is the only thing that kind of stuck here. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. If you look at the original Ruger criteria and where those cutoffs were established, the morphology did predict fertilization in vitro. And so I think that that link between morphology and the ability to fertilize an egg, at least in the laboratory, there's some data to support that. Should we all be buying mass specs, Kurt? Not not just yet, but if anyone's keeping score at home, the fatty acid would positively correlate with concentration and morphology. So um, while we don't know for sure exactly where it's fitting in terms of the semen analysis, it possibly is a new marker, as Eve was suggesting. Not sure I should buy a mass spectroscopy just yet. 
One other thing we could go down here. It's interesting that they picked unexplained infertility. As Eve alluded to, we don't really know what unexplained infertility is. Some people have suggested it's a female factor like undetected ovarian reserve, but many people think it's actually undetected male factor. So I actually think that this is the appropriate population for them to study. But of course, this, this is going to have to be correlated in other populations as well. Well, let's pivot from sperm onto oocytes. And Eve, you have a, an original article in the assisted reproduction section. Tell us a little bit more about number of oocytes retrieved and how it correlates with some of our important IVF outcomes. This next paper is titled, A Higher Number of Oocytes Retrieved is Associated with an Increase in 2PNs, Lassicists, and Cumulative Live Birth Rate by authors Michael Fanton and Kevin Loki from ALIFE. The paper seeks to answer the question of, are more eggs better using large data? And specifically, the authors utilized just over 400,000 autologous cycles from just under 300,000 patients with linked frozen embryo transfer cycles from the SARC-CORS database from 2014 to 2019, with the primary goal of determining whether a high number of oocytes retrieved during ovarian stimulation increases the chance of live birth. They investigated the association between the number of oocytes and 2PNs, blasts, primary transfer live birth rate, and cumulative live birth rate. Given the number of freeze-all cycles, SART now defines primary embryo transfer as the first transfer that occurs after retrieval. That can be a fresh transfer, that can be a frozen transfer, and secondary transfers as any subsequent frozen embryo transfer. Primary transfer live birth rate was reported on a per-transfer basis, stratified into fresh, frozen with PGT, and frozen without PGT. Primary transfer and cumulative live birth rates were calculated per number of oocytes in the associated retrieval. Cumulative live birth rate was further stratified by start age groups and diagnosis. The odds ratio with 95% confidence interval were computed to estimate the effect of oocytes retrieved on cumulative live birth rate and primary transfer live birth rate while controlling for age, BMI, AMH, and infertility diagnosis. And I think a little bit of background on why they did this. There's some thought that 11 to 15 oocytes is thought to be, quote, the optimal number. And there's a lot of chatter about more oocytes being retrieved, leading to lower quality eggs. And so they use these data to really parcel it down and answer that question. So what they saw was that the primary transfer live birth rate increased with the number of oocytes retrieved until 16 to 20, at which point it began to plateau. So that sort of does argue that more may not be better for a single transfer live birth rate. When they looked at fresh transfers using 11 to 15 oocytes as the reference group, the odds ratio of live birth showed a statistically significant decrease at 0 to 5 oocytes and 6 to 10 oocytes and remained close to the live birth rate for 16 to 30. Those cycles with 31 to 40 oocytes did have a decrease in live birth rate, and that's just for the fresh transfers. Looking at frozen transfers with PGT, these transfers had the highest primary live birth rate, especially at lower egg yields and only increased moderately with increasing numbers of eggs retrieved. When they looked at frozen transfers without PGT, these had a higher live birth rate than fresh transfers and odds ratio increased with each successive oocyte group until 26 to 30 eggs were retrieved. So looking at that again, for fresh transfers, when you have high numbers of eggs, you may be better off freezing all in those situations. Looking then at the cumulative live birth rate, so that first transfer and then each subsequent frozen embryo transfer, cumulative live birth rate per retrieval cycle increased with the number of eggs retrieved. It increased rapidly to approximately 16 to 20 oocytes, where it still increased, but with diminishing returns. Using 11 to 15 eggs as a reference group, the odds ratio of live birth increased with each successive oocyte group up to 36 to 40 oocytes. Overall, I thought it was an interesting study. More eggs really are better to increase your cumulative likelihood of success, not necessarily your per-transfer likelihood of success if you're planning on transferring fresh. I think overall it's intuitive, and it's a nicely done study using SART data, and it, I think it elegantly demonstrates this point. But I think the real question remains is how many live births can you get from a single egg retrieval? 
I'm for those of you who know me, I'm intrigued and possibly even obsessed with this question. These data show that more oocytes increases the cumulative live birth rate of a single live birth. However, the question that I really have is, are more eggs linearly associated with an increase in total number of live births? Or is there a maximum number of live births that you can have from a single egg retrieval? And the reason I think this is a really important question is as it pertains to frozen oocyte banks. If there is a maximum, say six, and centers are aggressively stimulating oocyte donors to get 60 and 70 oocytes, and then selling egg lots of five to seven to 10 to 12 intended parent couples, intended parents, then almost by definition, you're setting up some couples for failure, even those who are good prognosis with optimal endometrial development. The cynic in me thinks that if this is not the case and there wasn't a maximum, then these data would have been published, or perhaps now this discussion will spark some additional research. Pietro, I see you nodding. Tell me your thoughts. I, I'm glad that you highlighted that because I think some of your work recently, particularly as it pertains to cost effectiveness of egg freezing, has kind of really focused on this question is what about that second birth? I think we've gotten pretty good at getting people the first birth, but that second one from the same retrieval cycle, and you brought up donor egg cycles as well. Like the one and done concept is great if you can get the first birth, but what if you can do one and your whole family's done? Um, and where's that data? Well, it exists, but it's an older study, and it actually came out of Boston IVF. And what they showed was in the group who had 25 to 30 eggs retrieved, I think it was 70, 70 to 80% of those patients had one live birth, 50% of those patients had two live births, and then only 12% had a third live birth, and they used every embryo that was associated with that egg retrieval. And so I think it really begs the question of like, why was that third live birth so low? And I think that truly using these egg banks is the best way to answer that question. But I can't imagine that anybody wants to release those data. But I think that as we are stimulating donors more and more aggressively with Lupron alone triggers and getting these high number of eggs, I think it really begs to have that question answered. I think ethically, to know exactly how many live births you can get from a retrieval. Otherwise, not all egg lots may have equal reproductive potential. Yeah, Eve, it wouldn't surprise me that it's not as simplistic as we think. It's not just each egg has the same individual chance. It's probably a cohort effect to some degree. And I wouldn't be surprised if the curve you're drawing is linear number of eggs to success to a point, And then on each end of the curve, it I don't know if it goes up or down, but it's not linear. In other words, you know, a, a small number of eggs is going to be independently lower and a large number of eggs is not necessarily just additive. Um, I think that's just human biology we haven't figured out yet. Yeah, and I think um, part of what we looked at in our cost effectiveness data was the likelihood of live birth from one egg retrieval. And then we also had a second arm um, where we looked at the likelihood of live birth from two banking cycles. And when we looked at those data, we saw a much higher likelihood of second live birth with two egg retrievals. And so I think that probably naturally you have an entire cohort of oocytes. Naturally, the single best or one is recruited, whether or not it's the best <laughs> remains to be determined. But from a cohort, even in ovarian stimulation for IVF, like I, I really don't think that every oocyte has the same degree of competence. And I think it's why we don't see a 100% success rate when we do IVF and PGT. Is it the mitochondria? Is it the organelles? Is it cytoplasmic maturity? I think that there are markers that we're not appreciating, and there's probably a limit to that reproductive capacity. So you're saying there's a couple alpha eggs there and the other ones are not so good. <laughs> we should be looking at the best egg per retrieval and therefore getting a second or third retrieval. There's always, a, there's always a valedictorian, a salutatorian, <laughs> and then the rest of the class. Well, this is, this to me seems like a perfect extension study of Bruce Shapiro's study that was published in FNS last year, where they looked at the individual follicle size and rates of uh, aneuploidy when those eggs were created in 10 for PGT. 
And what if you could do that for here in smaller cohorts of eggs from donors and actually follow their transfer outcomes in recipients? I think that could help us sort out a little bit of where, who are the valedictorians, who are the salutatorians, and is there a difference within a cohort of eggs? Yeah, Um, but no question, Pietro, if you went to a donor egg bank and they have those data, right? They certainly know how many live births they get per egg retrieval. So my call to action is publish your data. Right. And and I think what you're saying is consumers are going to become aware of this, that it's not just the number of eggs I get, it's which eggs I get. You know, there, there's a certain amount of high quality in anything in life. I, could, I don't know. <laughs> we can go lots of analogies here. You know, the ripe tomatoes or something like that. I mean, just, you know, if you want, you want to get eggs one through five, not eggs 20 to 25. Well, and I think that perhaps the way to do it is to figure out what the maximum number of live births is. And then when you, let's just call it aliquoting, when you aliquot that retrieval cycle, then you do it based on the maximum number of live births that are observed. And so that may mean that one patient gets one retrieval cycle might yield 14 eggs per couple, but you would split the number of eggs by the anticipated number of live births, not just give every intended parent the identical number of eggs, irrespective of the original cohort size. And so one of the things that I that we can look at in our own center that I'm starting to keep data on are looking at the blastocyst conversion rate and the pregnancy rate per cycle, and then going back to the egg bank and figuring out what was the total number of eggs retrieved in that cycle. So what proportion of eggs were we given. But I really think that the onus should be ethically on the egg banks to publish those data. Yeah, I think Pietro is close to it. It might be size. I don't think we have a better way of marking it right now. But, you know, I would want the five eggs from the the 20 millimeter follicles and give somebody else the, the 10 eggs from the 12 millimeter follicles. So I think anywhere you look at this, I I don't want people to think that all eggs are bad. I think it's a probability. The best eggs have a higher probability. And the eggs from the smaller follicles have a probability, but that probability is lower. So yes, we should retrieve them, but I would be very careful if I were the buyer of which ones I'm buying. We're going to pivot from too many eggs to too few eggs. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know I'm a sucker for a good study on obstetric outcomes from ART-conceived pregnancies. Well, this month's FNS has a great article from Herman et al. from McGill University looking at diminished ovarian reserve as a risk factor for preeclampsia in placental malperfusion lesions. Now, let me set the stage for a minute. Patients with both DOR and POI are well-documented to be at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and metabolic syndrome later in life. Some have said it's from decreased ovarian function, and others have said it's from alterations in production of ovarian steroids. The problem with the latter, of course, is that E2 levels are typically in the normal to elevated range. And if a regular menstrual cycle is occurring, the ovary is still, quote-unquote, functioning. Another argument, of course, is that the pathogenic process leading to DOR may also induce vascular and metabolic disease directly. And if this logic follows, then it's possible that women who have a DOR diagnosis harbor cardiovascular risk factors. And since we know pregnancy is a window into the future health, cardiovascular risk factors in pregnancy may be presenting themselves as placentally mediated disorders, such as preeclampsia and growth restriction. To explore this further, the authors organized a retrospective study from 2009 to 2017 of all singleton live births from IVF with autologous eggs. Importantly, during this period, all placentas at the center were routinely examined by a placental pathologist, minimizing selection bias. They defined DOR as an AFC of six or less eggs using the Bologna criteria, and their IVF protocols include both antagonist and agonist cycles, culminating in either fresh transfers of day three or day five blasts using IM progesterone for luteal support, and this made up 65% of the cohort were fresh transfers. They also included frozen embryo transfers, the majority of these being programmed FETs with intramuscular progesterone as luteal support, about 30% of the cohort, and then the smallest were natural FETs, around 4 to 5%. Patients with DOR's placentas were compared to those without DOR, and a multivariable regression model was used to adjust for the important stuff like age, smoking status, endometriosis, and blast transfer. In total, 110 DOR patients and 772 controls were included. The mean age was 36 and 35, respectively. 
With regard to obstetric outcomes, deliveries in the DOR group were associated with a threefold higher adjusted odds of preeclampsia compared to those without DOR. Importantly, there were no differences in preterm delivery, SGA, or average birth weights. Placentas from those with DOR exhibited higher rates of fetal vasculopathy and fetal malperfusion lesions. Interestingly, lower rates of intervillous thrombi were noted in those with DOR, which intuitively you think would be more common if maternal CV risk factors were at play. The authors suggest that their findings support the hypothesis of DOR as an expression of cardiovascular risk factors, which subsequently manifest in pregnancy. I really dig that concept, but there are of course some limitations to this data. While these data, particularly higher rates of preeclampsia with DOR, are certainly provocative, it's important to keep in mind that this has been looked at by many groups before. There are three studies agreeing with this finding, four studies showing no difference, of course, different methodologies, populations, but this is not a slam dunk association. One really important thing to point out here is that the present study did not demonstrate a difference in the rate of maternal vascular malperfusion lesions among the groups, which, if you've been reading this literature, is a much more widely investigated marker for the association between preeclampsia and cardiovascular disease in cases of adverse pregnancy outcomes and one that's particularly important when we're talking about maternal risk factors being transmitted to the maternal surface of the placenta. And finally, we know that not all DOR is created equal. A 40-year-old with an AFC of 6 is not going to feel terribly unusual for me, but a 20-year-old with an AFC of 6 is. So it's important to understand or try to dig deeper into the etiology of the DOR. Is it surgical? Is it as a result of chemo? Is this a Turner's patient? Or is this just your run-of-the-mill 39-year-old with DOR? So what do you do with a study like this? Well, for me, I think we keep digging and hope to arrive closer at the truth with some better data. But I think in the interim, we pay real close attention to these patients because there appear to be hoofbeats here. And it remains to be seen if we're talking about a horse or a zebra. Kurt, Eve? I think two things struck me about this paper. First, AFC is not necessarily the most reliable marker of DOR. I was curious as to why they didn't use a more reliable and consistent marker like AMH. And second, the DOR group was older than the non-DOR group. And so I couldn't help but wonder, I know they controlled for age, but I don't know that you really can control for age if it's a physiologic difference that you may see a higher rate of preeclampsia with older women. I love these placental studies. I think we more and more of them are coming out. Groups like the Mass General have, have been publishing on their universally collected placental pathologies, have been publishing a lot of great data, Caitlin Saka and Drusilla Roberts. I think the, the way to do this correctly is exactly what this group did, is they looked at a period in time from a single institution where all placentas were analyzed. I think you can certainly have lots of selection bias in these studies where, oh, this is a placenta from an older patient, or this is a placenta where there's an adverse pregnancy outcome. We should send this placenta, but not send the other ones. So I think at baseline, that's fundamental to some of these studies. But I think there's a heck of a lot that's missing here that's correlated with placental pathology. Um, we don't really know about what happened in pregnancy for these patients. Did some of them develop a diagnosis of uh, gestational hypertension? Was there growth restriction involved? There's a lot of obstetric information that's informing these placental outcomes that I would like to see before I think that this is a slam dunk. Yeah, I like this study because it fits well done in terms of it's comprehensive and, and the institutions, they looked at everything they can. But to use a really bad pun, we're at the infancy of understanding what to look for. So again, we're at a pretty crude analysis here by just looking at things like placental morphology and things like that. But right step, we just baby steps. Eve, let's pivot to early pregnancy. And tell us a little bit about your study looking at core outcomes for ectopic pregnancy research. This next study is titled A Core Outcome Set for Future Research in Ectopic Pregnancy, an International Consensus Development Study with Crystal Chong and senior author Ben Ball and one of the middle authors, our very own Kurt Barnhart. So Kurt, I'm going to ask you a few questions at the end of this. But basically what they did was they worked towards development of a core outcome set. And the rationale for that is a core outcome set can reduce heterogeneity of reporting outcomes for both randomized control trials, as well as future systematic reviews and meta-analyses. The manuscript describes the process of using a Delphi survey and consensus to arrive at this core outcome set for future research in ectopic pregnancy. So the first thing they did was they started with a literature review. They identified a list of 37 potential outcomes. 
they invited at least 16 participants in the following groups, healthcare providers, researchers, and those with the lived experience of having an ectopic pregnancy patients. Participants were from a total of 12 countries, and the survey was administered in three rounds. Round one, participants scored individual outcomes on a nine-point Likert scale and were invited to propose additional outcomes. Round two, participants rescored the items and received feedback from the stakeholder group for each outcome. And then all outcomes reaching consensus in rounds one and two were included, and participants were asked to rescore in round three. They defined consensus as greater than 70% who agreed that the potential outcome is critical for decision-making. The final core outcome set was treatment success, including reasons for treatment failure, resolution time of ectopic pregnancy, number of additional interventions, adverse events, mortality, and severe morbidity and treatment satisfaction. So six core outcomes from a total of 37 that they started with. So I thought it was a really interesting description of the way a core outcome set can be created, and I commend the authors for creating this core outcome set and for publishing the process. What I thought was interesting was the final round had just 42% of participants compared to the first round. Seems like a pretty high attrition rate, and I can't help but wonder if that was due to the large number of patients that were included in the process. While I absolutely think the lived experience is important, and Kurt, this is what I'm curious on your perspective, having been a part of this, I'm not sure that determining how to conduct scientific research should be most strongly guided by those with lived experience or their and of one versus clinicians and researchers who have a much broader perspective on the field. Kurt, what do you think here? Well, this is a nice example of a Delphi process, which um, you can really like or, or not like, but the idea is that you need to be a little bit systematic in how you get a consensus. If we only ask researchers, we potentially have a bias. Um, but I agree with you that therefore it's important to ask patients with lived experience, but it's they're not driving the process. It's basically making sure that um, the investigators are not being paternalistic or asking questions in the right or the wrong way, or maybe we forgot something. And, you know, for example, in ectopic pregnancy, in this particular one, the patients did contribute more to things like quality of life or outcomes or aspects beyond just, you know, the, the, the one week in the hospital or the, the resolution of the HCGs. So in that way, they contributed. But but I agree, you know, um, yeah, I think we're it talking was about research, right? 58% of the participants were those with lived experience. And so it seems like I, I would think that, yes, probably a small percentage, you don't want to ignore the patient voice. But I'm not sure that that's what should really drive the majority of the participants in the survey and also potentially the high level of dropout. Agreed. And, but it's, you know, as I've mentioned, it's just one part of the process. You'd be more criticized for not having patient involvement than saying the patients are driving it because ultimately it's still the, 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 the authors of the paper that are deciding what are the, the right core outcomes. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. And I think to get from that giant list down to six is really commendable to say, look, these are the most critical aspects of ectopic pregnancy that should be included in every future RCT that's conducted, therefore potentially decreasing the heterogeneity of future meta-analyses. So really well done. Well, let me just go back, you know, why are these Delphi's done? There's a Delphi for infertility, there's a Delphi for miscarriage, there's a Delphi for lots of things in medicine. And the idea is just like you said, Eve, that um, without this, um, sometimes we go off into various degrees of what's important by different authors in different regions, and it's very hard to synthesize the data. So the Delphi is not meant to be definitive. It's meant to be basically say, look, if you're going to study this important area, at least let's speak the same language and make sure we're collecting data on the same things. Perhaps someone's going to do a Delphi in 10 more years and say, no, you got the wrong outcomes and you should be looking at this also. But it's just a way of harmonization, and I think that's the real benefit. It's an aspirational goal. It's what we should hope hope to strive for when we're when we're trying to publish on these topics. The problem I have with this is that, of course, these things aren't enforceable, and you may still see of these core outcomes, a half or a handful of them being published on. And we continue to have the same issue in our meta analyses where we have incomplete reporting or we don't have consistent reporting across um, studies. I don't know how we tackle that issue, Kurt. Where we say if you're going to publish on this topic, you have to report on these things. If not, you're just not doing a, a thorough job. 
All right. A, a little bit of teasing. We're going to talk about that in this podcast because we have trouble with that in, in um, recurrent implantation failure. We have no idea what the right outcomes there are that, and it makes it really hard to do things like meta-analyses, as we're going to talk about in terms of letters to the editor later. All right, let's do a hard pivot away from pregnancy and early pregnancy and talk about endometriosis. Listeners know that at least one in 10 women globally suffer from endometriosis with upwards of 90% experiencing chronic pain that seriously affects their physical, mental, and health and quality of life. While excision surgery is far and away the most efficacious way to treat pelvic pain, medical therapies also routinely use pre and post surgery or in some unfortunate cases in lieu of surgery. In recent decades, acupuncture has become increasingly popular for pain management and endometriosis, but rigorous level one data for patients with endometriosis associated pain is lacking. The authors of this study from four tertiary care hospitals in China recruited women 20 to 40 years of age with surgical ultrasound or MRI proven endometriosis, excluding women with endometriomas greater than five centimeters or those who had recent treatment for endometriosis within three months. They randomized subjects one-to-one into acupuncture or sham acupuncture using permuted blocks of five and stratified per site. The patients and the study staff were blinded to group assignment. However, the acupuncturists were not. Acupuncture consisted of 30-minute sessions three times a week for 12 weeks at prescribed treatment acupoints with a total of nine needles at a pre-specified depth of 15 to 35 millimeters with manual manipulation of the needle every 10 minutes during the session. Sham procedures were performed at non-specific acupoints at shallow depths and without manual manipulation of the needle. Primary outcomes were change in endometriosis-associated pain, including dysmenorrhea, dyspareunia, and non-menstrual pelvic pain at 12 weeks, as assessed by a visual analog scale. A long-term follow-up point at 24 weeks was also performed after the treatment had been completed. In total, 104 women were enrolled, 41 undergoing acupuncture, and 53 undergoing sham procedures. Notably, 82% of participants suffered from depression in this study group, which I think is always a nice thing to highlight here. Pain is pervasive and can cause a lot of other ancillary issues that are worth paying attention to as we're talking about treatment of pain. Well, the crux of the study is that compared to sham, the acupuncture group had lower mean visual analog pain scores for dysmenorrhea as well as the duration of dysmenorrhea at 12 weeks. Importantly, these became non-significant at the 24-week follow-up time point. Unfortunately, no differences were noted in non-menstrual pelvic pain or dyspareunia, which isn't of itself an interesting finding, but I suspect that it's because menstrual pain had an outsized impact on their chronic pain. And if, if improvements were to be had, you'd probably see it in menstrual pain first. Now, you may be wondering, how does acupuncture work to improve endopain? Well, some studies have suggested that the analgesic effect of acupuncture is closely related to the activity of central neurotransmitters, including endogenous opioids, serotonin, dopamine. And it's thought that acupuncture signaling will disrupt transmission and perception of noxious signals, which is perhaps why the significant findings washed out at 24 weeks. Now, Kurt and Eve, you may be wondering, should we be offering acupuncture to all of our patients? You know, I think our field has offered acupuncture for a lot of things. Um, This is a nice application for a a pain indication for a condition that we often treat. I like this study because I think it was pretty rigorous. I think the, the RCT aspect of it was done really well. The methodology is explained very clearly, meaning if you're trying to replicate the study or pass this on to a local acupuncturist who you're having a patient see for endometriosis-associated pain, they can clearly identify the needles, the depth, the technique, the acupoints, which I think adds some rigor to some of these studies which have notoriously suffered from lack of rigor. What did you think, Kurt, as an RCT guy yourself? Any issues on how this study was organized? Does it limit your interpretation of the study? I don't know. It's hard to say, Pietro, because you can always find lots of granular faults with an RCT. And you can always find enough fault that you can disagree with the conclusion if you already disagreed with the conclusion before you read the paper. So it's uh, it's interesting. I think this one was relatively well done. I think it's it, the conclusions are fine, but um, you just have to take this all in with a grain of salt when you look at everything else. Um, acupuncture just has a lot of bias to it, and it's uh, hard to really find the real truth here. I think there were two things that were really good about it. First, I really liked how they the control group was sham acupuncture. So they took acupressure like fake points in the arms and the upper shoulders, and they gave acupun- like fake acupuncture with needles to patients. So the patients were 
in fact, blinded towards their treatment arm. Um, I also think a lot of people have criticized some acupuncture studies saying that, oh, just having a practitioner lay hands on you and just lying still for 30 minutes may in fact have the same effect. And so I think that really doing sham acupuncture is a huge strength of this study. I think the second part is there is some biological plausibility to it. And I really liked how it showed that while the patients were undergoing treatment, there was a reduction in pain. And I think it is more biologically plausible when they're not undergoing treatment that they are not having an improvement in pain. And so I think of it, and it's kind of like ibuprofen. You take ibuprofen when you have pain, it treats your pain. And when you don't take ibuprofen, you're not being treated. So I liked that biological plausibility element of it. Worth pointing out that participants were allowed to take ibuprofen in this study. However, they did not report the amount of ibuprofen taken in addition to their acupuncture treatment. So speaking to both of your guys' points. That could be a flaw that maybe the acupuncture group took more ibuprofen and that may be a confounder. But I thought, you know, there are so few trials on acupuncture, especially so few trials that have a good control group that this was really well done. And so I, I liked it and I thought it was interesting and compelling and lends some support to the fact that acupuncture may increase or may decrease pelvic pain associated with endometriosis. I'll tell you, after having read it, I'm going to try to apply it. I think taking level one evidence and applying it to your patient group is is always kind of the translational part of the stuff that we're publishing. We offer acupuncture at Boston IVF on site, and I happen to take care of a lot of patients with chronic pelvic pain and endometriosis. I'm planning on going down the hallway today and asking our acupuncturist, could you replicate these acupoints in this technique? And we can try to offer it to patients and have use this as a multimodal strategy for helping patients with chronic pelvic pain. I'll report back. Eve, let's keep going on the theme of endometriosis and let's talk a little bit about endometriosis and pregnancy loss. All right. This is a really interesting study. It's called Endometriosis is Associated with Pregnancy Loss, a nationwide historical cohort study from Amelie Boge and Henriette Svar-Nielsen. It's using Danish national registries, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast, to evaluate whether endometriosis is associated with pregnancy loss and recurrent pregnancy loss. They define recurrent pregnancy loss as three or more pregnancy losses up until 22 weeks. The authors compared 29,000 women born between 1957 and 1997 with endometriosis diagnosed by symptoms, surgery, or MRI findings. They did not require histologic diagnosis. They matched these patients 1 to 10 to 275,000 age-matched controls without reported endometriosis or without codes for endometriosis. The primary outcome of interest was the number of pregnancy losses categorized as 0, 1, 2, and 3 or more, and the secondary outcomes were the predefined types of pregnancy losses. So they defined primary RPL as patients who have not had a live birth or stillbirth, who have had three or more pregnancy losses before 22 weeks. Secondary RPL are those patients who have had a live birth or stillbirth, followed by three or more pregnancy losses before 22 weeks. I thought this was really interesting. They also evaluated the odds of RPL after live birth of a male infant, after live birth of a female infant, and after live birth of two or more children who are both male and female. And it has been described that an abnormal maternal immune response against male-specific antigens established in prior pregnancies might contribute to RPL, especially in those with complicated pregnancies or deliveries, including preeclampsia, IUGR, and placental abruption. So I thought that was a really interesting spin on this. They also evaluated the odds of RPL in patients with endometriosis who were younger than 30, hypothesizing that aneuploidy would most likely not account for these losses in this very young group, and that endometriosis may be associated with a different mechanism of pregnancy loss. So I'm first going to discuss the significant findings and the odds ratios. And I think these sound really impressive. Spoiler alert. I'm then going to show the actual percentages in each group, which doesn't seem nearly as impressive. And I know that Kurt is going to tell me that this is exactly why large registry studies are done to have the power to detect small differences. But I'm looking forward to your take on this 
because while I wanted to get really excited about these data, I think they're really interesting. I am a little underwhelmed by the absolute percentages. So here are the statistically significant findings when they compared women with endometriosis to those without. And I don't want to bog you down with so many numbers. So just know that in this distinct group, none of these confidence intervals crossed one. So the odds of RPL overall, the odds ratio was 1.52. Primary RPL odds ratio, 1.8. Secondary RPL odds ratio, 1.3. After having one or more boys followed by RPL, 1.4. Three or more losses before age 30 followed by RPL, 1.47. One or more complicated deliveries followed by RPL, 1.57. Sounds really impressive, right? So there's a between a 30 to 80% increased odds of having RPL in each of these subgroups. Now, let's look at the actual percentages of patients in the endometriosis versus without endometriosis in each of these groups. Looking at RPL, it was 1.5% versus 0.99%. Looking at primary RPL, it was 0.8% versus 0.44%. Secondary RPL was 0.7% versus 0.55%. One or more boys followed by RPL is 0.35% versus 0.24%. Three or more losses before age 30 followed by RPL, 0.8% versus 0.54%. And one or more complicated deliveries followed by RPL is 0.15% versus 0.9%. Again, I don't want to disregard these findings. They are indeed significant, but the largest difference was half of a percent difference. And it's no doubt exactly the type of data needed to understand these differences, but I do struggle to wrap my head clinically around this means and how to think about it. Kurt, Pietro, what are your thoughts? Well, you're you're clearly describing the difficulty in epidemiologic research. You know, what is the right thing to look at? The relative risk or the absolute risk? And in this case, the relative risks are modest to begin with, but potentially of importance, especially if you're talking about a large percentage of people. So the pro on this one is a lot of people have endometriosis. So Theoretically, even a modest risk can have a big effect on a population. But I don't want to discount what you're saying, Eve, which is when you look at the specifics, especially with recurrent pregnancy loss, the absolute difference is actually kind of small. What struck me about the paper was not that the difference was small, but why were the groups of recurrent pregnancy loss so small? So it might have had something to do with their definition, that it was quite a strict definition. In practice, we liberalized that definition, and I would dare say that I have a lot more than 0.9% of people in my practice that have um, recurrent pregnancy loss. So we're not going to reconcile this. You've got an age-old pro and con with these epidemiologic research. I'm glad this research gets published. And the reason it gets published is because it's rigorous, um, meaning you can believe the findings, at least in terms of the validity of their study and their database. And then we can have this discussion on whether it really matters in the long run. And it's something that, to use Micah's memory, flows over us and we just put in our memory bank, or whether it's something that we can actually use um, with an individual patient in front of us. Yeah, and I think the big question that I had is I recently saw a patient who had a male infant, an abruption. She, we suspect she has endometriosis, and then she had three pregnancy losses, and then she has failed multiple IVF PGT cycles. She came to see me for a second opinion. She was recommended to use a gestational carrier, and prior to putting a deposit down at her GC agency, she wanted to know my thoughts. (laughs) I mean, she had failed so many IVF PGT cycles that it was pretty clear that using a carrier was the right answer. But after reading this article, I had this little thought of would surgery for endometriosis mitigate those outcomes? And I think that is so not answered by this study. But if we do think that endometriosis may be responsible in part for recurrent pregnancy loss, instead of jumping to ART in these patients who conceive naturally, like, should they have surgery to remove as much endometriosis as possible or even after failing 
multiple ART cycles, like, should I have told her, well, maybe have a laparoscopy and remove endo and do another transfer and see what happens. I mean, this particular patient had done five retrievals elsewhere and was so far down the path. I felt like there was well, no the desire to, to extrapolate this into clinical care is, is strong. Just this, like you're talking about. I mean, I, I would start with, it doesn't surprise me that endometriosis has effects that we didn't know about, that endometriosis can somehow affect pregnancy loss. That's a big extrapolation. Miles apart from treatment. Right, right. I I went through this when when I published years ago, you know, endometriosis affects IVF. So the the story there was, I think that people have a lower success rate with IVF with endometriosis, but that doesn't mean treating it improves it and it's still the best treatment. So it's more, do you understand the biology and then what can I do to that patient? Right. I think you made the right decision for your patient. Um, I wouldn't go back and say, damn, I wish I'd done a laparoscopy and she wouldn't have needed a surrogate. I mean, I, I think that's just going too far. One of the things I was hoping to see in this study that we didn't with these big epi studies is just a dose effect. When they looked at that subgroup of women with severe endometriosis, with rectovaginal disease, with ovarian endometriosis, the, there was no association with one, two, or even up to three or more pregnancy losses. I think that's just in their ability to parcel those data because so many of the women in the study, I had the same thought that I would have liked to see it more with endomyosis, but I think that's really just how things are coded in the large registry. And there's not really a way to identify who indeed has severe endo in this particular database. But I thought it was compelling, really well done. It's just, I agree with you. As I was reading it, I'm like, wow, these Danish people are so healthy. Only 1.5% of their population has RPL. Like, maybe I'm biased, but I see patients with RPL almost every day in my clinic. They must not be Danish. (laughs) Far from it. All right, Kurt, why don't you take us home with the last article of this podcast? Let's look at cannabis smoking and adenomyosis risk. Yeah, this is this is a fun study to talk about a little bit. And unfortunately, <laughs> spoiler alert, it's not going to affect your clinical practice today. So this is an epidemiologic study looking at, as Pietro said, cannabis smoking, tobacco, cigarette smoking, and adenomyosis risk. So nicely stated hypothesis to investigate cannabis smoking and cigarette smoking in relation to adenomyosis risk. It's a case control study. It used in-person structured interviews. And essentially what it showed was that they couldn't find an association with cannabis smoke and adenomyosis, but they did find an association, albeit a modest one, with cigarette smoking and adenomyosis. So why are we even looking at this? Well, it's timely that the cannabis is more prevalent and certainly going to be used a lot more in our patients or has been used a lot more patients. And it has been hypothesized that cannabis and smoking in a different mechanism are both um, potentially endocrine disruptors, allowing for a more estrogenic environment, and therefore a higher estrogenic environment theoretically can be associated with increased growth of endometrial glands and stroma. And depending on where you find that, and in this case, by the endometrium, you could have adenomyosis. So the reason I want to highlight it again is it's a relatively well done case control study. They looked at people with hysterectomies that had adenomyosis as their cases, and they had two control groups. Another group of women that had a hysterectomy that didn't have adenomyosis, as well as a population group of people. And then they had a relatively rigorous in-person interview about smoking history and cannabis use. Very sophisticated analysis in terms of the, the sensitivity analysis, adjusting for gravidity, for exposures. It was something I didn't think of. They looked at a group of women that would have undergone hysterectomy, kind of like um, likely voters in the poll for politics. You know, you didn't want to take people that would never have a hysterectomy because then they would have never been in your group. But anyway, all of that washed over shows that, at least in this study, cannabis use wasn't associated with endometriosis, but smoking was. And I think that association had been known. And again, as he pointed out, it's a relatively modest association with a a relative risk of around 1.3, 1.2. So it's not going to affect your patients today. It's interesting if you're an epidemiologic geek like me to see that they did a nice study with a lot of good strengths as far as a case control study will go. Good analyses, multiple control groups, but it's a case control study. doesn't have a lot of definition, uh, meaning you can't get to the specific um, association. And what they were hoping to find, I think, would be a large association, which would open the door to a lot more mechanism studies and a lot more other studies. But at this point, you can tell your patients whether they should or smoke cannabis is maybe out of our realm, but at least you can tell them they're not at least as far as we know today, it's not going to result in adenomyosis. 
As a non-cannabis smoker, I learned some interesting nuggets of information that 12 inhalations equals one joint. <laughs> I thought they <Yeah>. probably... <laughs> They were pretty good in the, in their in their exposure. I enjoyed that too. You know, I liked it. It's a How whole other question. Years? Right. It's it's a whole <laughs> other question whether patients told you the truth about it or not. But that's a you know that's another issue with case control. Well, the other issue is they're just looking at inhaled cannabis, and I think and I don't know. Like this is not in my wheelhouse, but I do feel like a lot more patients ingest cannabis than they smoke it. And so if they're looking specifically at THC then I think they have to look at all measures of ingestion, not just inhalation, but edibles. They mentioned that. And yes, well said. This is really a moving target. It's, it's, I'm glad people are doing this study with some rigor, but hard to study this. I could just see the authors having a good laugh on how do we, let's, let's measure and let's see how many, um, how many inhalations equal a joint. Like I thought that was funny. I, I don't think that I've seen that defined in the medical literature. And I guess I don't know enough to corroborate it, but I'm sure recruiting undergrads for that was pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, but how many had not meiosis, right? Well, you should breastfeed and smoking doesn't add or subtract from it. So, but preferably not at the same time. Ideally. Kurt, do you want to do the letter to the editor or no? Yeah. So, Petra, I alluded to that the specificity of what you're studying is important. And that's perhaps one reason why you might have core outcome. And one place that we do not have core outcome is the study of recurrent implantation failure and the use of ERA. So there's a letter to the editor in this month's journal. The authors of the letter to the editor are the authors of the meta-analysis, which was previously in the journal, responding to a reflections about their article. So very briefly, the original article by Sarah Aranian and Bill Gibbons, published a few months ago, was a meta-analysis looking at endometrial receptivity array before frozen embryo transfer. And they looked at more than 2,700 patients who had undergone ERA or not gone ERA and reported that the odds ratio of successful treatment was uh, 1.3 with a very wide confidence interval spanning one. And therefore, their conclusions was that the findings of the current meta-analysis did not reveal a significant change in the rate of pregnancy after IVF cycles using ERA, and it is not clear whether ERA can increase the pregnancy rate or not. Appropriate conclusion for a NEL study. We all know this is really controversial. Uh, there was a reflection on it, which basically applauded their methods, but suggested that perhaps the specific group of recurrent implantation failure might be something to know more about because it might have more of an indication. And that reflection by Allison Bosch and Heather Hip basically said, we should know more about recurrent implantation failure. So the authors of that analysis basically say, thank you very much for your interest. And in a nice way say, we can't really do a better meta-analysis because the underlying data is so poor that it's really hard to define recurrent implantation failure. It's even harder to define it in the paper because everyone did it differently and not everyone said it, which is making me the springboard for saying this is why we need core outcomes because everyone has a different outcome, defines populations differently, and it just gets to be a mishmash. And then when you try to do a meta-analysis like this to give a very good, strong clinical answer, you get noise. So I applaud the conclusion of the meta-analysis that says there is no evidence to suggest the ERA works, but it leaves the door open for lots of people that say, yeah, but what about this specific situation or what about that specific situation? And it's well said in the letter that even though this method, I think, is lacking evidence to support its use, quote, some physicians may hesitate to stop using ERA testing altogether because many patients who have been diagnosed with recurrent implantation failure often desire every available test or diagnostic tool and request more investigations. A very true statement. But the hard part, which I'm going to let even Pietro say is, is this the right investigation or do we need more evidence before we say, get this out of practice? I just transfer a day after extra progesterone. I, I'm not bothering with the ERA anymore, but that's just me. Yeah, I think we're done with it. Right. But you can see that there's pockets of hope, for lack of a better word. And that's why if we could define recurrent implantation failure, that'd be the first step. Uh, and then if we could design trials that look at um, patients in the same way that we really can combine them would make this evidence even stronger. Well, Kurt, you're leaving the door open for a preview to a future paper that's coming 
down the uh, pipelines defining recurrent implantation failure based on a consensus conference that was held in Lugano. So that should be out in a few months. And I obviously have inside knowledge as one of the editors to what's coming down the pipe. Stay tuned. That was a great teaser for next month's podcast or maybe the month after. Pietro and E, this is so much fun to put these podcasts together. Please give us feedback if we're reviewing the right articles and please argue with us. If we, we, you know, we're not the definitive answer here. So it's a way to start a discussion and we'd love to hear from you. And, and you can discuss it with us on our social media accounts. We're on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All of us can be found there and you can tag us, tag Fertster, and we can have the discussion with you. But we also like email. So if you have something that you want to share with us that we can talk about on the podcast, email us at fertster at gmail.com. And then Finally, if you want to really hash stuff out in print, remember that there's a new Consider This section that's now available. The Fertstert dialogue was sunsetted last month, and the Consider This article is the original content that doesn't fit the form and structure of a classic research article are now brought back to the main Fertstert.com website. And the Consider This section has been expanded to give you a little bit more options on what to write about. You can talk about ethics, current events, hypothesis, or even papers outside of fertility and sterility. As long as you keep it under 2,000 words and five references, we're happy to take a look and publish it on the FNS website where you can then share this in front of the paywall with your social media followers and have a more rich discussion beyond the print journal. Kurt and Eve, thanks for another great podcast. Micah, if you're listening, we miss you and we'll see you back hopefully next month. From all of us at Fertility and Sterility, thanks so much. Thank you all for listening and tap a friend and tell them to listen too. Have a great rest of your day. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.